Well, good morning. It's uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, whether you you've been able to make it and be here in person, or whether you're uh, snug as a bug in a rug at home um, and joining us online, we're so very glad that uh, you're with us this morning. We are uh, currently uh, in a brief series on the kingdom of God uh, in the lead up to Easter, uh, the kingdom of God that Jesus uh, inaugurated and ushered in, and we're looking at what what. The, the kingdom uh, life is like, what the kingdom that he has brought us is like. And we opened up um, this series by talking about the, the paradoxes, the, the tensions, the seemingly contradictory aspects of, of the kingdom of God. And indeed, a, a lot of what we're going to look at this morning, we're basically uh, going to look at the whole of Luke chapter 14. And a lot of what we see in chapter 14 really plays out uh, a lot of what we opened up this series with. And so I want to uh, read the whole of the chapter this morning. It's a bit long, uh, but it's certainly worth staying engaged with because there's so much here that uh, Jesus is wanting to say to us. So reading from verse 1, it says this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a, a great banquet, invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. 
Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who, him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear let him hear. Now this whole chapter begins with a dinner party which Jesus has been invited to. Uh, now, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a dinner party that basically turns out to be a very awkward uh, kind of evening. You know, sometimes those things uh, happen, don't they? Uh, generally, it starts right at the beginning where I mean, you don't quite know how the kind of way to greet the person that is invited to you. You don't know if you're shaking hands. You don't know if you're hugging. You don't know if you're giving a kiss on the cheek. And, and everybody's a bit confused and, 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 and it's a bit tense. And it turns to this very awkward thing where you end up just kissing someone on the ear and then pretending that it didn't really happen. And, and that's how it starts. And it kind of just goes on from there. And it's just the awkward the, the, the whole time. Well, this dinner party tops all of those moments when it comes to awkwardness. Because Jesus is remarkably blunt throughout this whole evening or this whole afternoon, whatever it was. Jesus is, is normally the best guest to have at a party. I mean, he, he, he's the guy in John 2 who, when, the, when, when they ran out of wine, turns all of these jars of water into the best wine in the house. So he's normally the best guest to have, but not here. Uh, we're told that the Pharisees are watching him. But really what we discover is he is watching them. And there's a man there, I assume he's just outside the house or, or maybe in the entrance of the house, who is suffering. He's got large swelling on his body and he's suffering. And everyone is ignoring him. They're walking past him. They're walking over him. They go round him. But Jesus begins by drawing attention to this man. And he asks him this question. Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? 
Now, Jesus already knows what they think. He already knows that they don't think it is. In the previous chapter, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, chapter 13, we already ran into a situation where Jesus was, was uh, there was this encounter with a synagogue leader who basically says, why have you healed this woman on the Sabbath? There are all these other days. Why on the Sabbath? So he asks them, is it okay for me to heal on the Sabbath? Silence. So Jesus heals him and sends him on his way. And then Jesus asks another question. He's in a fairly confrontational mood. He says, what about a child? What if, what if you have a child and the child falls in a well on the Sabbath? What are you going to do? Are you going to just leave the child? Or how about the oxen? You've got, an o- you've got oxen and the oxen fall into the well. What are you going to do there? And Jesus is beginning to make a point. He's beginning to make a, a point, the point to the Pharisees that their obedience isn't really about being obedient to God. It's not really about caring about God. Their obedience really is about caring about themselves. They only intervene for people that they care for or consider valuable or useful, like maybe a child or, or an oxen, but this person that they don't consider valuable enough to act they don't consider him value enough to, to be able to act on, uh, on his behalf. Again, more silence, more awkwardness, more shifting around in their seats. And by this point, no one knows where to look. Everyone's looking down. Everybody, you know, is checking their phone, wondering if they can go home soon, wondering if this would be a good time to excuse themselves to the bathroom, anything other than to catch his eye. Now, if I had been sitting next to Jesus, I'm not saying that I would have got that seat, but if I had been within earshot, I might have whispered, okay, enough, you've made your point. But clearly, as you read the chapter, Jesus has not made his point enough. And so he cranks up the awkwardness even more. And this time, he really gets stuck in. He's seen something, something else He's he's seen basically how everybody wants to sit in the best seats in the house. They they jostle and compete for it. And he spotted it. So, of course, what does Jesus do? Jesus tells another story. He tells a story, a parable, about a, a banquet, about a wedding banquet, and about how people are coming in and they are jostling and competing for the best seats at the wedding banquet. It'd be like if I went to a, a wedding and observed that, the, you know, there's always the, the top table and, and then and there's the table plan and people were kind of moving their names on the table plan or just moving tables to get near the top table, you know, jostling to get the best seat in the house to, to, so that they can get served first. And it'd be, it'd be like seeing people doing that and then during the speeches, even though I wasn't invited to give a speech, I get up and tell a story about a wedding where people keep moving moving the names and trying to get the best tables, trying to get at the front of the food line. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. It's not subtle. He's seeing something happen, and then he tells a story about what he's seeing happen. And, and, And the next thing he does is he turns to the host of the party now, the host of this at this point must be thinking, good grief, why did I invite this guy? Please, please, please don't speak to me. But Jesus looks at him and he says, 
But when you throw a party, when you have a dinner or a banquet, don't invite all your friends or your family. Or in other words, don't invite people who can pay you back. You know, your rich neighbors. But deliberately invite people who cannot pay you back. And he describes the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Silence in the room. Anybody with any emotional intelligence anywhere in that room knows, keep your head down and shut your mouth. Just, I mean, just try to wait for the whole thing to be over and we can all go home. I don't know if you've ever been in a meeting or some kind of gathering where it's all, you know, the environment is a little bit frosty, there's tension in the room, and everyone knows You've just got to keep your mouth shut. Don't raise anything. Don't disagree. Don't pipe up with your, your good idea. Just everybody knows, other than one person who for some reason has not picked up all any of the social cues. Well, there's one of them here in this story as well. Because everybody knows, keep your head down. Don't even look at him because he's going to start telling a story about you. Everybody knows that apart from one guy who cannot deal with the silence any longer. And he just pipes up with, and I guess he's hoping it's what Jesus wants to hear, something religious, Jesus will like that, something that will maybe get Jesus on their side. He says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And you could just imagine everyone else just rolling their eyes going, oh no, what have you done? This guy is thinking, good, I've said something religious, Jesus will like that. No, not good. Because it sets Jesus off even more. Jesus, surprise, surprise, tells another story. This time about a man who throws a big party. It's another dinner party story. It's about a big party and all these people have been invited. And when time comes for the party to start, everyone who has been invited doesn't show up. And they have excuses. I'm busy. I bought some oxen. One guy comes because he, he's just bought some oxen. I guess it's like I've just bought a new car. I, I, I don't know. I got a, a, a new field. That I've got to go and see it, someone says, which is a bit odd. Have you, I mean, have you not already seen the field? But no, I've got to go and see the field. I just got married. I can't make it. I'm too busy. And so the master sends out his servant first into the streets and then out into the country. In other words, he goes out twice, the second time further afield, and he goes to get all those who were not invited. And notice it's exactly the same group that has been described before, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. In other words, in this story, everybody that society discounts, everybody that they ignore, Everybody that they think unimportant. Everybody they consider unclean and unworthy. Everyone just like this man that Jesus has healed. Everyone just like him. He's gone out to get them, to bring them in. And then he finishes with the punchline of all punchlines. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now what's going on? 
Well, the first thing that's definitely going on is this guy who invited Jesus is making a mental note, never, ever invite him again. This is the most awkward dinner party of, of all time. We've all been at those places where someone just speaks something just completely, uh, you know, you're just all like, ooh, I, it just it feels inappropriate. And certainly this host must be feeling that right now. But the main thing that's happening here is that Jesus is reacting to what he's seeing as a demonstration of exactly what this kingdom, his kingdom, is not about. He is seeing before him a total misunderstanding of what maturity looks like, a total misuse of power and position. And he is confronting it both by teaching and demonstrating to them what the kingdom of God is like, what matters, who matters, and how you enter the kingdom that he is announcing and he is inaugurating in himself. And there is a great challenge here. There's a great comfort here. And there's a great choice here to be made. And that's really, if you like, three banner words for kind of what comes out of this chapter. There's a great challenge. There's a great comfort. And then there's a great choice to be made. Uh, first of all, what Jesus is doing is deeply challenging. And it is, it's deeply challenging to all of us. When I grew up a, a, as a kid, it seemed fairly common in those days to see in churches or even in people's homes to see this sort of picture on the wall of a man with long hair. Uh, and he often had some little lambs with him. And he always appeared very placid and very chill. And I think that was supposed to be what Jesus was like. Well, that Jesus was not at this party. Because Jesus is not chill here. He is revolutionary. He's a confronter. He's a challenger. And if you read Luke 14 and you don't feel challenged, it's probably because you don't see yourself in this, in this story in the way that you should. Because it's so easy, if you are a Christian, to have a bit of a, a Pharisee in you or in me, or, and in me. I mean, you, you look at the story in Luke 15, what we call the prodigal son, which is really the story of two sons. It's very difficult not to turn from being uh, uh, the rebellious younger brother who, who be, you know, when you become a Christian, into a self-righteous older brother as you go on. It's difficult not to do that and become, a, a, over time, a bit like, like a Pharisee. And Jesus is challenging the Pharisees, and he's challenging the Pharisee in us about who matters and what matters in his kingdom. He, he knows that they have dis, deeply misunderstood who matters and what matters, and he knows that we can easily misunderstand. We can easily lose sight of who and what matters. Now, the Pharisees were supposed to be Israel's teacher. They were supposed to be, and they were supposed to help people, to invite people into a relationship with God and help them learn and grow. But more often than not, what they become is more like religious bouncers at a nightclub who look at people and say, no, you don't look right, you don't live right, you don't come in. And Christianity, wrongly understood and wrongly applied, can become a bit like that. You don't look right, you don't live right, you can't come in. 
the Pharisees had developed what some commentators called boundary marker spirituality. In other words, they were prone to judging people by certain external markers as to how spiritually mature. They would assess how spiritually mature they were or, or, or how obedient they were by certain markers. And therefore, they would treat them accordingly. And, and, and for them, it was things like, how loudly and eloquently someone prayed, how devout they appeared, how well they knew the law, how closely they followed the rules, how much money they gave publicly. And without saying it, they kept score. And, and, and critically, they would treat people differently depending on how well they scored. And if you don't score high enough, you're not in. And some people in that culture wouldn't even score at all, score at all and they were considered un, impure or unclean or ungodly or outsiders. And where Jesus encounters this, he, he, he challenges it. And he, and, and he keeps challenging it again and again and again. And he keeps saying, that's not how it works in the kingdom. This is a completely new way of thinking about the kingdom. And so, for instance, he points out a widow in Luke 21, who puts two small coins into the offering and says, she has put in more than anybody. Jesus appears to have a very different way of counting. When he teaches on prayer in Matthew 6, he says, look, when you pray, don't pray, uh, don't make your prayers be like a show like the hypocrites. I mean, they pray out on the streets just for show. They pray loudly so that everyone can see them. But you... Go, close your door and go away and pray in secret, he says. And he keeps challenging them, and it should keep challenging us, because every culture has a tendency toward boundary marker spirituality to define who is mature and who isn't, and to treat them accordingly. I mean, I suspect if I were to ask the question, how do you think in our churches, how do you think... We define or, or, or mark or pick out people who we consider to be spiritually mature. My suspicion is that not a few would answer with something like, oh, well, it's, it's about, you know, like you can tell from you know, where they sit. They sit near the front. Or it's how well they pray or how well they seem to know their Bibles or how big their Bible is. Or, or how de demonstrative or passionate they appear outwardly, or how many church services they attend. Now, I do want to say, it's great to attend a lot of worship services. It's great to pray out. It's great to know your Bible well. It's great to be outwardly passionate in, in worship. All those things are great, but they're, but they're only indicators. They're not actually what counts, because you can do all of those things you can come to every church meeting and pray out loudly every time. But you could be selfish and mean and your heart could be far from God. Or you could be the opposite and actually have a very open, generous, kind heart and you're walking closely with God. In fact, Jesus comes and he re redefines what spiritual maturity and what walking with God really looks like. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees asked Jesus, which is the most important commandment? And he says, love God and love others. Love God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength and love others as yourself. And everything else hangs on these two. 
That is what maturity looks like, he says. That's what counts. And so Jesus here starts to act this out. And, and, he, and he points to this man who is suffering that everyone is desperately trying to ignore. And, and, and to everyone else, he's basically invisible. But not to Jesus. And, and, the, and the first thing Jesus does is draw their attention to him. and says, look, can you see this man here? In other words, the first thing Jesus is doing is he is showing them that people are not invisible to him. That people matter to him. And Jesus keeps doing this throughout his ministry. He stops when Bartimaeus calls out in Mark 10 and everyone else is trying to shut Bartimaeus up. Shut up and he stops for him. He sees Zacchaeus in a tree, as Mike talked about last week. Zacchaeus hiding up in a tree, and he spots him and says, I want to come to your house. And it's important because when you see someone, you value them. You acknowledge they exist. And simply by seeing him and putting people's attention to him. Jesus is saying, this guy matters. He is worth something. He's valuable to me. I remember a number of years ago, someone used to be in this church and also spent some time and has spent some time homeless on the streets. It really taught me a lesson. He, 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 he talked about the experience of just sitting outside of, say, a, tar, a target and, and, and how people would intentionally, purposely just avert their eyes and how hard that was that there wasn't even a willingness to acknowledge the humanity of this individual. And sometimes it's just in seeing people that, and looking at them that we, that we value them, that we, that, we, that, we, that we acknowledge that they matter. But when Jesus, he goes a step beyond that and, and he then touches him and we're told that Jesus took hold of him. Now to touch someone in this culture was a big deal. There were a lot of rules about who you could and could not touch, about who was considered pure and impure. And Jesus takes hold of him and by touching him, Jesus is saying, not only does he matter to me, but he is acceptable to me. And then he heals him. In other words, Jesus is saying, I see him and I want him in my kingdom and now I'm going to give him something. He's going to receive something of the power of the kingdom from me. Jesus is demonstrating to them who the kingdom is for. The kingdom doors are wide open to everyone. Who matters in the kingdom? Everyone. We're not going to mark people by external performance anymore. All these people are valuable to me, and all of them are welcome. And he challenges the Pharisees. And then he challenges them even more as the story goes on, because this story is not just about how God views people and, 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 and what the kingdom is like. This is how we are to live in the kingdom. If you want to be my, in my kingdom, in other words, Jesus is saying, you have to live out the values of the king. You have to be like the king. You have to represent him. And so he says, when you are, when you are invited to a dinner party, don't jostle for the best seats. Be humble. Allow others to sit in better places. Now he uses the picture of a dinner party really as a picture of our lives. In other words, he, he's saying, live your life not pushing yourself forward, but promoting others. 
Give away, if you like, your best ideas. Open up your friendships. Be generous with your money. Intervene for people who can't stand up for themselves. Live your life sitting in the cheap seats, allowing others through. Change your personal seating plan, in other words, Jesus is saying to them. And then he says this, when you have a party, change your invite list. Now again, this story is like a comment on our lives. When you live for the kingdom, kingdom living, you don't treat people on the basis of what you can get out of them. You don't invite people just because they're going to be able to invite you back. Don't use them, he's saying. So it's a comment on our lives. But I have a distinct impression that this is more than just a comment on our lives. I have a sense that Jesus is also actually giving real advice about dinner parties about, and, and, and who you have at yours. He turns to the guy and says, when you have a, a dinner party, change your invite list. Now we prefer it to be a metaphor about our lives and we recognize that it is in one sense. Because who we stop for, who we talk to, who we take an interest in, says a lot about who we value. So in one sense, it is. But even more is true, I would say, of who we invite into our homes and to our tables. That was true uh, of the culture then, and it's true for us as well. So, so don't move on too fast. Don't dismiss it. Don't just think, oh, he can't mean who I actually invite to my table. I think he does mean that. And it's hugely challenging. Because who we do that for says a lot about who we care for and who we value. So it's hugely challenging, but secondly, it's also hugely comforting. Because in these stories and in this passage, what it means is Jesus is saying, if you are broken, if you're a mess... If you're someone who would consider themselves outside and beyond the reach of God, if you have train wrecked your life and you would think, oh, I could never, I, I, I'd never be acceptable. I, I could never go to church. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just not good enough. I've got to get my life sorted before I could ever go. If you are like that, then the kingdom of God is for people like you. God wants people like you in his kingdom. It, it, it means that if you're suffering like this man, it means that you need to know that God sees your suffering. Jesus, it, Jesus is sensitive to this man's suffering. This man doesn't even ask to be healed from what we can tell. And yet Jesus is sensitive to him. It means if you feel invisible, if you feel unnoticed, unknown, people just don't see you, you're not important enough, it, it means that you are known and you are seen. Jesus keeps saying it. The Father knows. The Father knows. He even knows how many hairs you have on your head. And for some of us, that, that's easier than for others of us. It means if you feel insignificant, Jesus is saying, oh, you're valued. You're loved in the kingdom. And it's so important because some of us have grown up in contexts where we felt invisible and insignificant and unloved. We've maybe even grown up in a, in a home or a family or with a parent who was more interested in the equivalent of the oxen than they were us, their job or their stuff or their dreams. 
And it's left us feeling invisible and insignificant and unvalued. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I see you. I care for you. The kingdom is for people like you. So it's hugely challenging and hugely comforting. But also, and finally, there is a great choice to be made. Because in verse 25 of of chapter 14, Jesus goes from confronting the religious people, the Pharisees, and the little Pharisee in all of us, to the crowds who are pressing in. We're told that huge crowds are following him. And Jesus turns to them and says these outrageous words, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, what, is that, what does he mean? Does he really mean we have to hate our families? Does it mean we have to, you know, disown um, our extended family? I know some of you are hoping that is what it means, but it's not what it means. doesn't mean that. Jesus clearly cares for his own mother. We, we see that at the cross in John 19, how he deals with her so tenderly. What he is saying is this. There is a choice to be made if you want to follow me and be in my kingdom. If you want to follow me, if you want to be in my kingdom, it will cost you everything. It's all or nothing. Jesus is saying, I have to be first place in your life or not in your life at all. I'm more important than family, more important than even your own life. And you have to be all in. In other words, it's an incredibly radical call. And so he turns and says to this crowd, and he's basically saying, I haven't come to be a miracle giver, uh, you know, for for the times when you're having a a tough time and you just need a a religious fix. And he turns to the Pharisees and says, I haven't come into your life just to be an advisor to your life. I haven't come just to affirm the way you view religion as a way of just defending and promoting yourself. He's saying, I have come as the great host of the greatest banquet. I've come to throw open the, 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 the wide, the gates of my kingdom to anyone who will come, but it will cost you everything to come, but it will be worth more than anything. And you read through this chapter, and you know that there'll be some who won't choose to give him first place. Some of them will miss him because they're simply too religious. They're so used to seeing it simply as a way of, of simply promoting their, their, their own well-being. Others won't come because they never really wanted a Lord. Uh, they simply wanted someone to give them a, a spiritual hit every now and again. And we could treat God like that. I'll come to God when I need a hit. I don't want a Lord. And Jesus is saying there'll be others who who won't say yes to him because they're just too wrapped up in their own lives, their own stuff, in their marriages, in their possessions, in their work. And Jesus says these words right at the end, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Friends, the kingdom is a massive challenge to us. It's an incredibly comforting and wonderful piece of news to us as well. And yet it also brings to everyone a great choice to be made. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you this morning for uh, your word and for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his kingdom that he has inaugurated and ushered in. Oh, his kingdom is indeed a, a great challenge to us. It challenges so many of the assumptions that we make. It, it, it challenges um, our so often incorrect and limited thinking and our, our wrong heart attitudes. But his kingdom reality also brings great comfort to us. It is a kingdom of acceptance and hope and of freedom. It is a kingdom completely radically different from the kingdoms of this world. But as well, we have been starkly reminded again this morning that this kingdom also prevent, pre presents a, a great choice. Yes, the, the invitation is broadcast far and wide, but sadly it is often rejected. Oh, may we this morning, those who've been found in the highways and hedges of this world, may we, having heard the invitation and counted the cost, may we now be filled and satisfied both in this life and forevermore. But we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.